Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with Anan Hira, venture partner at iBoss Ventures and the founder of his own B2B startup, Zakara. We're here today to talk about the globalization of the startup ecosystem. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's been driven by the pandemic, but I think um, Anna and I would both agree, although Anna and I will defer to you, that globalization in terms of the startup ecosystem happened a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast, Eric. Uh, really appreciate it. And in terms of globalization and the startup ecosystem, to me, you know, like you said, it's been an ongoing thing, so to speak. Um, you know, especially with talent in various countries, and especially in from my uh, original hometown in India, being you know a, a relative tech hub um, to throughout Asia um, and Europe. Uh, but for me, to me, really, what the pandemic did is accelerated adoption, right? Like it's always been there. Um, we've always had a need for talent, but the kind of steps that early stage, especially earlier stage companies would take to you know, identify talent was always a little uh, challenging, I would say. Um, but you know, again, when the pandemic hit, we all were forced into uh, this remote lifestyle and you know, proliferation of Zoom as we're using today um, mm -hmm. has really, change the way we reach and communicate with um, peers across the world. So, you know, as a, as a founder myself, um, I've really noticed that a lot of communication gets started on, you know, LinkedIn or various job board or whatever it may be. And the next day we're, we're talking in terms of fit and identifying whether that talent um, makes sense. So, you know, I think looking back, this pandemic really has changed for, for the good, um, the way we communicate and engage with talent um, throughout the world. It's interesting. I think you hit three different points, right? You, you mentioned talent, you mentioned technology. Um, and I think the, the third one that I kind of want to probe you on actually as a venture partner is, do you think that this, decentralization of startups is going to have a positive or negative impact for you, well, either as a venture partner or as a startup founder. I think maybe, the, the, let's start with the venture partner. Do you see any like super positive benefits or, or, or drawbacks right now with that decentralization or globalization? I'll, I'll tackle that from two perspectives. As a source of capital, this, has obviously created more competition when it comes to global capital and uh, you know, sovereign funds that can now pretty much um, really reach any startup at any stage uh, today and, and kind of compete for that investment. Um, and as a venture capitalist investing in an early stage company, I think the access to global talent that you know, presumably drives costs down uh, in most cases, and you know, with a relative, com you know, comparable talent pool, um, I think it's a good thing. You know, anytime a startup can stretch their dollar to get more resources, is ultimately going to drive them closer to their end goal, right, of achieving that next milestone. So, I think on balance, it's a great thing. Um, I think what we will be doing and will need to continue to do is be just be thoughtful about how we differentiate ourselves, right? Whether it's as a founder, 
Um, and as a venture capital firm, like we need to start highlighting our, our kind of pluses, our real, you know, unique experience in terms of separating ourselves from competition. Interesting. I, one thing I've always wondered, because I've talked to a lot of startup founders, uh, a lot of them have had to, um, they have their development teams overseas, usually in their home countries. So for instance, a friend of mine was from Morocco, his dev team's in Morocco. I have a friend uh, in Canada, his dev team is in Canada, but he's now in, in the EU. Do you think that with, that people without maybe those home connections can build that, those strong development teams purely by using technology or, do you need to at least meet every once in a while for uh, in person, right? And I think that's what a lot of my start founder friends said is like, hey, I've done my two or three years in Silicon Valley, built up the, the BC network and my, my industry connections, and now I can go back home, but I need to be there in the first place. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's, it's really, first of all, um, my dev team uh, for Zykara is in India as well. Um, and so that's, obviously, uh, or maybe not obviously, uh, my uh, family um, birth country. I would say really it, it's an individual case. It, it really depends on your level of communication sophistication. And what I mean by that is, you know, even from having an Indian descent, uh, there's different business practices that go on in our home countries that we tend to maybe not evolve with um, when we grow up in another country. Um, so that's one thing that maybe doesn't really benefit having going back to your original country. Um, I would say the second thing is if someone who is looking to acquire talent from a country you know, like India or Morocco um, wanted to do that or Eastern Europe being a, a popular destination, I do think it's important to have someone in your team that can kind of be a not only a guide but like a translation piece in terms of you know someone may do or say something in a certain way and it may not fit culturally but it's something that can always be worked on so I do think it's certainly beneficial that you can go back and acquire talent at um, a reasonable um, you know I guess price point, so to speak, to, kind of have to monetize it. <laughs> but I do think it's really important to have some insights into the local um, kind of means of doing business and communication styles as well. So there's no real, well, I think one of the biggest challenges is, is the drop off in translating the business idea or, you know, the product idea from the business team to the, you know, whoever the product project manager is or the, you know, the lead, uh, for the development shop uh, or team. So I think it's a, great, it's a great thing overall, but something to be just very cautious about in terms of having some level of understanding of how things work. I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's why lots of uh, national governments, they have those trade offices to kind of help facilitate, although they probably focus more on like the process, but I think you hit the nail on the head with culture, right? Um, speaking of, of culture, do you think that 
having a, a globalized team, it's harder to build a unique culture or is it easier? And does it actually have advantages for the business over the long term? Sure. So I can speak to my experience with Zycara itself. I would say it's very beneficial for us because we have, first of all, we are a small team at this stage, so it's relatively manageable. Um, I think it really depends on the personalities that you bring in, whether it's you know domestically or, or internationally, who are open-minded, right? So I think it depends on the you know the mindset of of the team. Um, but for us specifically, you know, we share cultural experiences, cultural differences, and it kind of creates you know a bond between us and not only um, understanding each other, but really kind of creating camaraderie from our personal experiences. I think overall people enjoy learning new things. And so um, being able to share different cultural experiences um, in our, you know, the downtime that we have in communication is, is really important for just feeling like you're part of something that's bigger than just your box, right? Um, I think it adds to that dynamic in terms of being a team. Um, so I would say it's, it's, it's a, it's been pretty fluid for me. I can see where as you scale, it becomes more and more of a challenge, um, especially again, like I said, on the communication front. Uh, but I think with thoughtful management, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a net positive, I would say. Interesting. Um, I think one of the things that you hit upon in terms of technology, I think you kind of highlighted, you know, you could potentially build that connectivity with LinkedIn and, and to find, let's say, your development team, et cetera. Do you think that where we are from a technological perspective, uh, we are where we need to kind of like further decentralize the startup ecosystem, or do we need to go further? Uh, I mean, everyone knows Meta is trying to do the metaverse. So, yes. like, do we need like enough? Do we need the metaverse in order to further decentralize, or is there? I mean, we've talked a lot about culture. Is there mm -hmm. that human factor um, that we'll always need, to, whether it be over Zoom or in-person meetings or a combination of the two? Well, I will start off by saying that I do think a hybrid approach is going to be, you know, the norm in terms of having that uh, team and working environment. Um, I would say where we're at today is obviously we're at a, <laughs> at a major inflection point in terms of where we go from here, from everything we've been through over the last uh, almost two years now. Um, but I would say, where we're at is a healthy place. I, I think the more and more we become less personal with you know, our peers and our team, I do think that can lead towards um, certain mental health aspects that are probably not talked about enough. Um, you know, One of my passions on the side is of course, mental health uh, personally um, through uh, various affiliations and relationships, but I think if we're going to talk about, you know, what we need to do to decentralize more, is that, is that a path forward? I would personally say no. I think having the ability to um, communicate on Zoom or, or whatever platform is good enough. I, I don't think we need to start, you know, becoming less and less personal by having, you know, fictional uh, animations or creations of ourselves in a, in a different universe. 
to, to express ourselves. I think we can express ourselves pretty fluidly by being us in the real world. Although, you know, I do see the benefits of having that, but I don't know in the work environment if that's really, um, I don't know, we'll see actually. To be honest, I think I'm taking a wait and see approach on that, but personally, I do feel um, being able to, you know, speak face to face um, is important, whether it's on Zoom or in person. And I do think some component of in person is very important as well because uh, body cues, you know, the mm -hmm. high five, um, that experience together of being together, um, you, you can't really replace that with technology. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of where I fall. I, I would be inclined to agree with you. So, I mean, we've kind of talked about the, let's call it the extreme example of, for instance, uh, in California and India. But if we look just within the United States, we're also seeing that migration from Silicon Valley in New York City to other hubs like Miami, Austin, and even smaller hubs, depending on their internet connectivity. Do you foresee within that let's say frontier markets, you see the continued growth or do you think there'll be something that will arrest it? Because at least for larger corporates, to your point, we're seeing a lot of hybrid work, but they're saying, hey, I have to come in three days a week and then two days remote. But if I have to come into an office, is there office nearby? I don't know, I'm gonna make this up, Oklahoma City. So do you, do you foresee a continuing growth in terms of those, let's call them frontier tech hubs, or do you see something that will reverse that in the short and long term? Great question. You know, in, in the short term, I do see um, with just how much activity is going on and especially I can you know, speak to the startup ecosystem. Um, I think it's expanding dramatically, again, probably tied to the amount of capital flowing through the system. Um, so as long as that you know, remains relatively on par, I think having the multiple hubs is only just gonna expand the interest into the ecosystem. And when I mean that, like by the tech ecosystem. So, you know, like Silicon Valley will always be the premier hub. Um, and I do notice that a lot of individuals who moved out due to the pandemic are moving back. Um, but I do see those hubs as kind of here to stay. Uh, I don't think anything can really derail that as long as the energy and the foundation from which they were built remains. So, you know, again, there's active founders and investors in those hubs. There will always be people looking to start new companies and will, you know, I would say relatively on default veer towards the hub that's closest to them that they maybe um, and another aspect is, of course, um, you know, the culture around those hubs, right? You know, there's, mm -hmm. people kind of tend to flock towards something that's more in line with them and their personality. So I do think that's a, you know, not only a beneficial aspect, but something that will keep those hubs uh, remaining relatively strong. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? In terms of, for instance, Silicon Valley, Yes, there's a lot of, let's call it platforms and software focus, whereas Boston, for instance, is a bit more biotech. New York is financial services. Miami is crypto. So um, not only is it in terms of different verticals, but it's also in terms of personality, right? right. Uh, and that's always a good thing for, to your point, the startup ecosystem. The more diversity you have, more ideas we have, more 
chances for the next unicorn and decacorn out there. So exactly. that's super interesting. But from um, from a, a, a venture partner perspective, doesn't that make it more difficult to find the next pre-seed startup to invest in so you can be part of that decacorn or unicorn? Sure. You know, I think it goes back to, you know, one of the original topics um, that we discussed is the connectivity today. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's more challenging. I do think it's important to have um, just more eyes on the ground at these hubs is, is, you know, important. So being thoughtful about where you're sourcing, you know, deal flow in terms of having a local, you know, maybe there's what, five, six, seven places where you need to keep track of. So building a relationship in those areas where you have eyes on the ground um, is, is somewhere where you can offset that. And it gives more opportunity as well um, for, for, our, for our fund. Um, I think outside of that, there's really, I don't think any difference. Like, you know, you have to build your venture brand, right? You have to attract um, a reason for uh, early stage companies to want your capital as much as, you know, um, especially for the, like, you know, describe the high flyers, the ones who have, you know, the potentials written everywhere, right? Um, you still have to build that brand and wherever you're located has no uh, relevance to that. But I would say that it, it can be challenging because you do have to make sure you network very well across the space. But, you know, there's plenty of opportunity and plenty of activity and a lot of platforms that kind of, just give you that access no matter where you're located. So. It, it's interesting. You, you kind of highlighted the benefits uh, in terms of what we see in terms of globalization or decentralization of the startup ecosystem. Have you, whether as a venture partner or as a startup founder, have you run in, into any drawbacks or pitfalls that you hope will be smoothed out in the future, whether it be, um, you know, uh, movement of money or, setup of corporations, et cetera, or even just paying taxes. It, has that been a major issue or has it been something that's inconsequential at the moment? You know, I, I will say at the moment, it, it's relatively inconsequential. Um, I, you know, one example, <laughs> you know, on the downside, not necessarily on the downside, but it has opened up uh, room for a lot of fraud from international investors or claiming to be international investors. Um, I actually experienced this back in February, I believe. Um, you know, there was a supposedly big fund out of Thailand. <clears throat> and so, you know, in terms, and, and, it, and after doing, you know, extensive due diligence, it just wasn't gonna be something that I was gonna get involved with. Um, so, you know, the connectivity does open up room for, let's say bad actors to take advantage of the distances while also kind of presenting like they um, uh, kind of belong. Um, so I think with a careful eye, it, it shouldn't be a problem, but I can see how um, it can turn into a growing and larger um, problem as the amount of capital, again, that's sloshing around the system um, kind of incentivizes, uh, you know, not not to like dissect it down to poor nations or or whatnot, but like you know there are opportunities that they see um, that are coming out of the U.S. and so they're becoming more and more sophisticated about how they can tap into that somehow, you know, one way or another. So 
that is a potential downside, but I think, you know, overall, um, it's still a relatively small number. And I think, you know, everyone is ultimately responsible for the decisions they make. That's, you know, my personal philosophy. And, you know, even with, with crypto and everything else, like I do think that, you know, if, if you allow yourself to do something without doing the proper research, then, you know, that falls on you to, to a degree. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think uh, one of the things that I've always stated is that as much as we try to impose rules and regulations on everyone, everyone, because we're human, will find a way around the rules and regulations. Just depends on how much you pay your lawyers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's for sure. <laughs> Even on a micro level, like, you know, when we make up our minds on something, it's, it's, it's on us to, to learn. Hopefully we learn with um, less painful outcome if it does go south, but, um, and I, I guess, <laughs> you know, that could tie into a whole other conversation about the education system and all that, but um, we'll save that for another time. Trust me, that is a favorite topic of mine because I think <laughs> that, that, that is the root source of many ills in our current society, but uh, I digress there. Um, speaking of, in terms of if, if we, we think that globalization of the startup ecosystem is a good and positive benefit, which I think both you and I agree on, are there things that major actors, whether it's the government or big tech or you know even NGOs can do to kind of further entrench it um, and, and accelerate that, that participation, whether from a, a, a local level or a national level or even international level? Great question. I think, you know, we'll start with the government, um, especially local governments. I do think, uh, and they may exist, uh, I'm just maybe not as familiar, but I do think having some support in terms of, uh, you know, the vetting process, whether it's through the government or through uh, an independent organization where you know, there are a lot of companies out there for um, freelance work, you know, Fiverr, Upwork, all that, which is great, right? And they kind of um, deal with a lot of the reliability question mark, right? But I think if we have more support on that front, um, for especially for longer term hires, uh, that could be really beneficial. Um, how would that look? I would say, you know, on the government front, some sort of I don't know, database system where, you know, uh, people looking to work in the U.S. For, for U.S. companies can kind of apply to a centralized system. That system can vet that individual. And then companies here can leverage that system rather than trying to find one-off situations. I think maybe just streamlining that whole process for um, businesses in the U.S. can be, you know, pretty interesting and helpful solution. And as far as big tech goes, I think they're actually, ironically enough, driving the globalization um, <laughs> in a different way. And what I mean by that is, from what I know, um, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, the like, um, are really aggressively uh, recruiting continuously, even, you know, beyond their quote unquote headcount needs. Uh, and they're really filing away a lot of strong talent. Um, and so because of that, you know, early stage companies are having less and less opportunities to recruit. Uh, and so we have to look elsewhere, right? So I think that's an interesting dynamic that's been playing out for some time. So I don't know whether 
you know, they're incentivized to streamline that. I know for themselves they would be, but um, I haven't, I don't know. What, what do you think about that actually? I'd love to kind of get your take on that. It's, it's interesting. Um, I think there's a lot of things that can be done to help streamline. I, I kind of like your database idea, right? Or at least some type of validation system um, in order to smooth and simplify. Um, and, and I think this goes back to the tension between privacy of the individual and also interconnectivity of governments, right? My, I think your analysis in terms of big tech is interesting. I, I, I never thought of it that way, but it does make sense because you all gravitate towards the big names. They do really great advertising. It's like the fangs, really right? Well. <laughs> they pay really well, exactly. But I think it also opens up opportunities for governments to plug the hole and say, hey, why don't we fund, going back to your education comment, you know, people that can hit the ground running, have the actual skill sets we need. And I'm not necessarily advocating for STEM, but I think you and I could agree that, yeah, you can get an engineer out of Harvard, but I still have to provide some type of training to get them to code what I need them to code, right? Sure. So I think it's, it's, it's building more of those fundamental foundations. So whether it's educated, useful employees, whether it's broadband connectivity, whether it's reducing the overhead burden. So the question I was asking and alluding to is, you know, the taxes It's like, do I have to register in every state if I want someone working in Utah or can I just do it one simple thing and it's covered everywhere? right? Because right, yeah. I don't want to spend my money on overhead. I want to spend my money on building a product and selling the product. So I think there's a lot of efficiencies. And it's yeah. funny because when you say the word efficiency in government, that scares a lot of people because it's like, oh, we're just going to cut everything. It's like, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm all for a transparent, accountable system. Mm-hmm. I don't need 10,000 people backing it. I need a database that is automated that I can access 24 seven. So that's my two cents in all honesty. I think there's a lot of efficiencies that both big tech and startups themselves are driving. And I think this globalization that we see in the startup ecosystem is is helping to drive that. Now, that being said, it scares a lot of people. And I think the big question, which again is another topic is, what do we do for those in transition? Right, I've asked my startup friends this and they say, oh, they'll get re-educated. Well, it's kind of hard for a 55-year-old coal miner in Pennsylvania to get re-educated in coding. Not to mention, you kind of indirectly told them that they're useless when you've totally forgotten they've raised a family, built a community, participated in church. And and those are valuable things for society um, beyond their jobs. So, but... That's my two cents. But usually with my podcast, I usually leave my guests with the final words. So any final thoughts in terms of globalization of startups that you want to impart to our audience? Well, I want to also conclude by thanking you, Eric, again uh, for having me on. You know, I think ultimately globalization is here to stay. And so it's better to be on the accepting side of things and help shape the framework for it. Um, rather than, you know, kind of resist and fight it. Um, And I think any temporary, you know, geopolitical reason or whatever it may be, uh, speed bump, 
will be just that. And so because of that, I think, you know, as a founder and as an investor, I think it's just important to be very thoughtful about how you approach the world and kind of just educate yourself on the subtle differences around various regions and kind of take a step back and reflect on how that could be a value add to you rather than kind of looking at it as you know more competition or, or more of a uh, an axe to grind um, so to speak but um, yeah I think overall just having the mindset of embracing it um, is going to be critical to kind of evolve with where we're where we're heading in my opinion so thank you for that perfect well thank you and then and, and um, I look forward to having future conversations with you but thank you again for participating in the podcast Thank you so much, Eric. It was uh, definitely a pleasure.